in the end, you can only change yourself, right? You can't even change. You can't affect even your kids. Like when they're young, you think I can make them this. No, (laughs) we are all the only person you can really change is yourself. So human nature is, well, everybody else around me is being negative. And so I can't be my best self until they fill in the blank. Welcome to the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I'm serial entrepreneur and investor, Emmy Kirshner, and I'm known for sprinkling just a little bit of glitter throughout the streets of Philadelphia and on the stages that I speak while I help creative entrepreneurs stop struggling as the overworked admin in their business and become the CEO of their multi-six and seven-figure businesses. What has fascinated me over the years are the stories of success and failure that courageous entrepreneurs who have put it all on the line face as they change lives, disrupt industries, and become incredible leaders themselves. So if you're looking for a community of engaged entrepreneurs and you'd love to get some resources and tools that can help you fast track your business, I invite you to join the Tribe of Leaders Facebook group. The link is in the show notes if you want to connect with us. And of course, the group is free to join. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Tribe of Leaders. On today's show, I have Layla Taraf. She is a senior human resource executive with over 25 years of professional experience. And after graduating with her MBA from the Haas School of Business, the University of California in Berkeley, I want to know about that experience. That's like the school that just is like, law for me. (laughs) Uh, She became one of the founding team members at walmart.com. She's also served as the chief people officer at Pete's Coffee and Tea an iconic Bay Area premium coffee company, which you can get on the East Coast because I have purchased it. And she's currently the chief people officer at Allbirds, a sustainable footwear and apparel brand. She's also the trusted advisors to many entrepreneurs invested and investors and is a guest lecturer at Berkeley Law School. Her debut novel, Strong Like Water, shares her hard-won insights on the importance of balancing courage, compassion, and infusing power with tenderness in business and in life. Layla, welcome to the podcast. And wow, like you've done it all. Well, you live live long enough. (laughs) Boxes, I guess. (laughs) Share with everybody a little bit, like, Outside of the bio, a brief synopsis of like what you love doing the most and how you've contributed. I know it's kind of an open, vague statement. That is a great question. And one that I think about a lot. I try to pay attention to what brings me joy inside. Like I always give that advice to younger people when they say, what should I do? And I say, pay attention to what lights you up. And I think very early in my life, I figured out that what lights me up is being in service like helping people. I remember being young and thinking, is that a thing? Is that a profession helping people? It doesn't sound like a thing. But of course we have these helping professions and it's just so fascinating to me that I, my undergrad was computer science. I have an MBA. And now 25 years later, I am as close to a helping profession as possible in business. And so what I love to do is to teach, to help work through thorny problems together 
I just love that challenge. I love the aha. If you say something and someone goes, oh, I haven't heard it that way before, especially when it eases suffering or pain because mm-hmm. I've lived it and I know what that's like. And I love the saying, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. And you know, now that I'm in the latter half of my career, I just have this real desire to want to give back whatever that looks like, whether it's coaching or leadership or mentorship, parenting. Mm-hmm. That, that really is what lights me up. Which is amazing. And I align with so much because for me, it is about helping people. We all need help at some point with something. That's right. And it's always interesting to see who shows up when you're open to receiving that help. Well, the interesting thing is for me, the challenge in my life has been to be able to ask for that help, which I think is a female thing. We sometimes have a hard time. I remember after I did, oh gosh, I don't know, over a year of therapy with my therapist, he said it was one of those moments where he asked me to describe something. And I said, well, you know, I'm very low maintenance. He says, what does that mean? I said, well, you know, I don't have a lot of needs. And I was trying to act you know, all cavalier, like, look at me. It's all effortless, right? This ruse, this lie we tell ourselves. And and I could tell he wasn't buying it. He looked at me and he said, so if you act like you have no needs, how do they get met? I thought, oh my gosh, he's right. Like, that's a really bad strategy because then you're resentful that people aren't there for you when you are pretending you don't need them. So it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy where <laughs> you're not served and they're probably not help, help happy either. Absolutely. And you're just doing everything on your own by yourself. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, it's funny because I've had people tell me that I'm high maintenance and I'm like, I'm not high maintenance. I'm particular and discerning and I want things a certain way that I want them, but I'm also willing to compromise. And I think for women, we're supposed, the bucket that we used to be kind of put into one of many is that we, we weren't supposed to be needing anything, right? We're supposed to be low maintenance and it almost gives us like no voice. That's right. I think a lot about where that belief comes from. It's probably different for all of us. And for me, I grew up in a home where my mom and dad fought a lot. And so they weren't really very present for my needs or the needs of the children because they were sort of embroiled in their own battle. And I was the eldest. And so I took on, like, I made up the story like, oh, if I just, if I just act like I have no needs and I take care of myself and I get good grades, then they'll notice me and pay attention to me and love me. And that's how I, I will get what I need from them. I'll get their attention in that way. I mean, I could have very easily gone the other way, which is to rebel and, you know, to act out but I didn't. And I, and I always think about that when, when I meet people who have a hard time and women, especially asking for help. I think it goes back to having a childhood where you feel like, at least for me, it was, um, I felt like I'd be a burden to have just normal, natural needs. It took like 40 years to unwind that. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. Anybody who's out there listening, (laughs) don't buy into that lie, right? Yeah, no, it's, I think it's, I mean, our needs are supposed to be met. Like we're supposed to be above. And I think Maslow's I argue, like getting those needs from a foundational standpoint, we're supposed to be operating at a much higher level. And if you're not asking, you can't have them met. That's right. That's right. And it's perfectly natural. Needs, emotions, feelings, 
They just are. There's no judgment on them. It's not good or bad. They just are. Right. Absolutely. Absolutely. What's been some of the learning experiences that you've had as the chief people officer? At Allbirds or at Pete's or just in my life? In general, um, but either if there's specific examples too. I think probably the biggest learning is that people are complicated. You can't, (laughs) and not not in a, oh, you're complicated. I think people are multi-layered. And I just had this conversation earlier today with one of my executives. He wanted to make a call on somebody who literally just started working with us. And I said, well, look, given what I see today, this is what I see, but let's wait a year, right? I mean, there's lots of people have all different sides and they're capable of so much. And so, you know, this concept or this idea of of a growth mindset, I really, really believe in. And if you have a growth mindset, it requires you to be a little patient and to be curious and to have um, a presumption about people and the human condition that it is always evolving and adapting and changing Mm -hmm. and able to get better and to learn and to grow. And so I think that's been one of my big takeaways is if you create the right conditions for people to do great work, to feel like they can make mistakes and not kind of get dismissed or penalized, that is when you get the most out of people, which takes us back to the first question, which is what lights you up or, or what do you love? It's, it's, it's being able to do that. It's to create a culture, conditions for people to feel like they can be on the edge of, oh, I'm not sure what I'm doing here, but this is kind of exciting and let's try to do something big. That's been a big learning. Another big learning is that culture is set, the tone is set from the very top. If you have a fear-based leader from the HRC, there's not much I can do to impact the organization. Culturally speaking, it's like rearranging the deck chairs. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. Because everybody's just afraid and nobody produces their best work. That's right. When they're feeling like they're not secure and they're not in a safe place. I mean, yeah, you might get that initial adrenaline bump with something, but it's not sustainable. I would say my newest learnings at Allbirds is, I mean, they're this intergenerational workforce. Whew, yep. It is not for the faint of heart. It's crazy <laughs> no. how differently we think about things. And, you know, it's great for me because, again, I'm at the later stages of my career. So it keeps me young. Well, we will all experience something and then someone will talk about what their take from it. And I'm like, really? That's what you took from that? Like, wait, walk me back how you put those, how you connected those dots. And more often than not, I'm like, oh, okay. It's just, again, going back to just stay open, curious. They're learning from me. I'm learning from them. Yeah. I really feel like the younger generations have an amazing opportunity to radically change how we work. Oh, yeah. And oh, work it's right there. Positive. I don't really like the word balance because there's still not a lot of leave and balance. It's more flow. Like sometimes, you know, yeah. you're here in one space more than another space and that's all okay. And I'm really curious over the next five to 10 years with how that transforms what we create, yeah. produce, who we are, not only at companies, but globally. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens as we come out of the pandemic, as we start going back to work. Almost everyone I know is approaching a much more flexible type of uh, work arrangements. I think it 
depends on how you define balance. I think perfect equilibrium, you're right, is not possible. But whatever that looks like for you, there are going to be days where you're, you have to focus more on home or children or exactly. self-care and other days where you're burning the candle. But to have like a 50-50 or whatever your percentage is per day, no way. <laughs> that doesn't work. No, because the random curveballs of life, whether you know it's your kid getting sick or my dogs, it was like anytime I needed to go to a meeting outside because I've worked from home for so long, one of them would throw up on the carpet. It's like they, I could almost plan on that. So I started, <laughs> and but it's a random thing where you've got to stop and take care of it. And it just adds time. I think that's what my dog is doing too. Now, now that I think about it, <laughs> there was a special on the Today Show yesterday with a vet. And he was talking about how our dogs are going to be super anxious when we go back to work because they've had us now for a year. I was thinking that because I've worked from home for forever, that and my guys are used to me being here and being in and out, in and out. But the last several weeks, they've been far more anxious. And I thought I was going to get away from that. And clearly, they're part of kind of this thing where the pets are feeling more anxiety. So we've been working on keeping them chill. And then... Our poor babies. Yeah. <laughs> we digress. We talked about, you know, fear-based leadership being really difficult um, to manage. What other, I guess, what other leadership styles do or don't work that, you know, you've seen over your years in your career? Well, I think any sort of fixed, rigid, unyielding leadership style is going to have a very hard time today, right? The world has become very fluid. You know, we're living in a VUCA world, virtual, uncertain, complex, ambiguous. I've heard it described as 3D chess. And you just need to be more nimble and more agile in in how you show up and how you respond to things, how you think about things. You can't get super dug in on one way. And at the same time, you need to develop a, a cadence and a discipline. So it really is trying to thread a needle. So I think being adaptable, being resilient, being agile, those are the 21st century skills. I also think, you know, and I talk a lot about this in as a big insight that emerged for me is heart-based leadership is here to stay. I was reading an article the other day that said, you know, it used to be all about your, the brawn, you know, in the, we were laboring out in the fields, then it was about your head in the information age and 21st century leadership is all about the heart. It's empathy, it's collaboration, it's approaching people, you know, as whole people. It is bringing your whole self, trying to be a little more authentic, being more honest when you don't have the answer, showing vulnerability, expressing your needs. Mm -hmm. Those are all emotional intelligence and social intelligence skills that is just so interesting, right? Because now computers can do so much Machine learning is here to stay. And what we worked hard to do over the last 50 years, now you can do with a push of a button. So for us humans, the real skill is the emotional and the social skills that we need to develop. Right. I I love that because I think for so long, we've been disconnected from community and the way I perceive the leadership that's coming up and the way we make change is that we're in the place where we can rebuild those communities. 
because we're bringing our whole selves. It's interesting. I never thought about it that way before, but in some way, this pause over the last year has made us even more aware of how important real human connection is. I mean, Zoom is awesome and I'm amazed at how productive we have all been, but there is nothing like meeting someone in person. You know, we have these mirror neurons that fire off of each other. You don't get that, right? In Zoom. So you need both. (laughs) The energy of it. I really miss speaking live, networking live. Yes. Yeah. And I've been blessed because I live in an apartment building where I have got some really cool friends. We were able to hang out, you know, outside. And so still having some social interaction and some normalcy. But I know, you know, a lot of people who they couldn't do that just because of where they're located. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to segue into the book. Sure. And I'm really curious, how did you come up with the title? And is there meaning behind that? Yes, absolutely. Strong Like Water. I struggled with this for a while. I had a working title that was strong and soft for a long time. And I was really, I was really looking for a title that would capture the duality that I was trying to live into of being a single mom, a nurturer, a female business leader, but someone who was also, you know, direct and needed to make things happen, you know, strong and capable. And I was looking for something that captured the strength and the tenderness I was trying to live into. And I was talking with a friend who was a marketer and he reminded me Lao Tzu was an ancient Chinese philosopher. He's around 600 BC. He wrote 81 verses called the Tao Te Ching. Yes. Lots of people have heard of, right? There are 81 verses. So powerful, especially if they were written so long ago and they're still valid today. And these verses, they capture the inherent duality and the paradoxical nature of life. Mm -hmm. And Be Like Water was verse 78. And it's actually about how water is very powerful, but in a gentle way. And in it, he says, water is fluid, soft and yielding, but water will wear away rock, which is rigid and cannot yield. And then he says, as a rule, whatever is fluid, soft and yielding will overcome whatever is hard and rigid. And you think about how water wears away rock in the Grand Canyon. So he says this. So in this way, this is another paradox in life. What is soft is strong. And I thought that's it right there. Yeah, strong like water. We read the whole verse. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. And a lot of people know it from Bruce Lee because Bruce Lee used to use it a lot. I watched the documentary, I think it was on Netflix. And and he said, he says something like, water has no form. You pour it into a cup, it becomes a cup. And you know how he used to move just so effortlessly. And he he likened that to, to water, but very strong when he came down hard, right? Right, absolutely. Brilliant. I mean, the title just resonates with me. So I love I love the story and the meaning behind it too. Share like what was the the catalyst for writing the book? Because I'm sure you have plenty on your plate. (laughs) Being a single mom, being at Allbirds, you know, mentoring, coaching, etc. Well, as you know, I had a five year period of time where I experienced a lot of loss. First, my husband, when my daughter was three years old, passed away tragically. Then my father had a stroke and died away and died in his late 60s. And then my mother had a stroke and slowly 
got worse and passed away. So in a period of five years, I had really the three people closest to me pass away. And as is often the case, (laughs) periods of tremendous adversity in our life provide real opportunities for growth. And for me, up until that point in my life, I had never really allowed myself to be vulnerable or to be sad or to allow myself to what I consider to be wallowing, right? Anything that ever happened to me, remember, I had this sort of super strong and capable persona. I can do it. I called it my hero persona. I have no needs. I can handle it. And I had a lot of capacity. And these three losses, you know, I always say the universe gives you what you need to grow. <laughs> and I, I guess I needed three because I might have been able to muscle through one, but I couldn't do three. I couldn't, I couldn't intellectualize them. I couldn't tuck them away. I couldn't reframe to the positive. These were all the tools in my, in my distraction arsenal to keep me away from feeling badly. And what really did it for me was having my daughter who was three, who was openly grieving. And and at first I'm embarrassed to say I was, my skin was crawling. I'm like, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. And I realized I had to do it, that I couldn't expect her to process the loss and to grieve in a healthy way while I was mailing it in and standing on the side. It just didn't work that way. And so that began a very long road for me where I, I went back, I got my coaching credentials. I did a lot of therapy. I, I resisted, I fought, I tried to intellectualize. Uh, it was a street fight. <laughs> and, but in the end, I was able to recognize that for a long, long time, I had my, my heart and my body, the intelligence that comes from your heart and your body, your somatic intelligence, your emotional intelligence kind of locked down. And I was able to free that up. So, you know, I always say you have three centers of intelligence, head, heart, body, and there's so much wisdom inside. If we're only living in our head, we're missing (laughs) so much. And so that was the impetus to write the book. I learned so much on my journey. I'm so, I have so much more ease in my life. And, and as I started to uh, come out of that period and I would share some of my insights with friends, More often than not, they'd say, oh, yeah, I do that too. Oh, I know what you mean. Oh, I really resonate with that. And I started thinking, wait, do we all do this? And I realized that while the details of my story are personal and unique to me, what I was doing, this journey of self-discovery and self-reflection and unwinding the false beliefs I kind of structured as my narrative in my life, that right there, we all, I think at some point in our lives, do because that is the path of personal growth. And I thought, well, if I can write a story that others can see themselves in and it can provide a little bit of insight for them, back to the beginning, what more is there to be able to help people for all of us on our journey? You know, Ram Das says, we're all just walking each other home. In the end, we're all just walking each other home. And I just love that saying for all of our divisiveness, we're all just going to die one day. And why not just be kind to each other and walk each other home and and love each other along the way? That's really beautiful. And I hadn't thought about it as that, but so true. Yeah. So I'm glad. I mean, that's those, these are all the insights and learnings that, that, that have come to me over the last five years. And 
I just think there's a need for that in the world right now. There's so much going the other way that for those of us who are experiencing the integration, we need to make our voices heard because that needs to be a counterbalance to the fear, the divisiveness, the hatred. There's a lot of us who are loving, giving, growing. What advice do you have for somebody who feels like I'm surrounded by resentment, frustration, anger, like just whatever other less than positive emotion? What advice do you have for them and how they might be able to take a step towards positivity and asking for what they, they might require? It's a great question. Well, in the end, you can only change yourself, right? You can't even change. You can't affect even your kids. Like when they're young, you think I can make them this. No, (laughs) we are all the only person you can really change is yourself. So human nature is, well, everybody else around me is being negative. And so I can't be my best self until they fill in the blank. And my old coaching instructor used to call it the island where everything works out, where you say to yourself, when this happens, then I will show up this way. And then that keeps us all in this very stuck place because you're waiting for something else out there for you to do something. And I think that is a fallacy. So when everything goes sideways around us, what we do is we look into ourselves, right? What can I do? How am I showing up? right? The, the saying by Gandhi, um, become the change you want to see in the world. So if we want to see more kindness, more humility, less anger, then we ourselves need to show up that way, which means we need to love ourselves, forgive ourselves, accept ourselves, which is so hard, <laughs> right? Because if we come from that place, we will shine that out for everyone else. So that is, for all of us, that is our work. Louise Hay, who owned the Hay House, the yeah. public, when she's passed now, but I remember seeing a presentation or an interview by her when she was in her 80s. And she said, you know, I've been studying all of this work for so long. And what it all comes down to, I realize is self-love, is loving yourself. And that's been true for me in my journey as well, right? When I start getting tough on my employees or on my daughter, I say, hold on a minute, hold on. And I get very clear pretty quickly that really I'm driving myself and then I'm projecting that onto others. And when I realize that, I usually try to go back and say, by the way, that was not about you. That was about me. (laughs) (laughs) Right? Right? Our parents never did that. (laughs) Exactly. And if you think about it too, like at least for me, anytime that I've been very short with somebody, whether it's my kids or somebody I work with or whoever, it's totally not ever about them ever. It's about whatever I'm stewing it on or in, in my head. This is why I think this work is critical in our lives, because if we don't allow ourselves to fully process our emotions in the moment, they get stuck inside of us. And that's when we get triggered, right? And a trigger is not because of what's happening in front of you. It is picking up on something that happened a long time ago that you're sort of, you know, being reminded of in that moment. It's usually tied to an old emotion that got pushed way down and is trying to come out and we won't let it. It's like a wound that won't heal. And so I I think, you know, therapists call it the unresolved childhood wounds. And so the more we can excavate and get to the bottom of all those, allow ourselves to feel them, let the emotions work through our body, 
then there's more spaciousness inside of us. Then we won't get as triggered. It's not to say that I don't lose it. Of course we all do, but now I lose it much less often. And even when I do, it's not like it's not such a high peak and I'm able to recover and go back and say, okay, what just happened? Well, and you can clear it like that's, and you can clear it. Good point. Hey, I just messed up. Yeah. And for at least my experience, and maybe yours is similar, is that when I go back and clear it with that person, they feel better. They're not carrying around my yuck, but they also are very accepting and forgiving. 100%. I mean, I will tell you, you know, my book's only been out for about six weeks. And when my friends that I've known for for years say, oh, you wrote a book, there's still a little part of me that's like, oh, don't judge me. Are you going to think, I don't know, now, now that you know all my flaws and Every time, even though I still have that like expectation, like I'll be judged every time they will say, wow, I never knew this. I've known you for years. Or, you know, when you wrote this, I really could identify with it. And immediately it drops us into a deeper connection because I'm, I'm showing a little of myself and which makes them feel like they can show more of themselves. Yeah. And it's so cool when that happens. I mean, not only is your relationship deeper but it allows you to step up into this place that I think just breeds more kindness. Exactly. Exactly. And it's so funny because we're all, I had somebody on the podcast, I think it was like six or eight months ago and she been through a terrible divorce. Her husband was her business partner. The business blew up. She, you know, had to sell her home, et cetera. And she similar story and, you know, had to hold it, believe she had to hold everything together. And she's like, when I started talking to people and telling them what was going on, she's like, I can't even express how much support and no judgment on anything that had happened. And like, that's the really cool thing about being vulnerable. So I'm, I'm so glad that you are sharing your story and I'm really excited about the book. Oh, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Where do you see, and I've been asking this of a lot of people lately, Where do you see yourself like in the next year or two? Any new projects on the horizons or? Well, I feel like leading right now through everything we're we're dealing with the global pandemic, first getting kicked out of the office, now trying to come back into the office, no one wants to go to the jammies. You know, today is the year anniversary of George Floyd's murder. We're Mm -hmm. still dealing with a lot of social unrest and the political divisiveness. So I feel like I'm in a bit of a boot camp right now in my current role. And it is challenging in a very big way. And so my plan is to continue learning and growing. And of course, I have a little project I've started thinking about. Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't leave out of variable. And you know, you, when, once you write a book, you're like, I could do that. I think there's an opportunity to write or to have a more cleanly defined business book, like a how-to book as they call it, because what I am experiencing now is how to bring this more balanced, blended, head, heart, strong like water leadership type into work and specifically into companies that are dealing with everything I just talked about, as well as intergenerational conflicting mindsets as you're trying to grow through like the crazy startup to high growth phase. That's a lot of lot of factors. And I think that there are some principles that I see that could be interesting to highlight in a book that is all about 
how you grow as a company in the 21st century without losing your humanity. So that's what I'm noodling with right now. I'm really excited about that. <laughs> well, good. I hope. Say yes, do it. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, that's my goal. I, I, I'd love to have that out in the next um, year, year and a half. Okay. I'm curious too, because everybody has a different process. What was your process for writing the book? Oh, it was very organic. I didn't have this. I'm going to publish a book. It was never like that. And I think maybe if I had that, I might have felt like I couldn't do it. And so I think I purposefully kept it small, right? And I went to a writing workshop. I really enjoyed it. I thought, gosh, that, who knew? And I've always written well, but I wasn't never a quote writer. And that, that workshop, I went to a workshop in Montana with Laura Munson, who's a writer. And it was five days of just writing, writing, writing. And I thought, oh, this is cool. And I'd read about, I had written about 30 pages. And when I read it to the group, because we all had to read one piece, it really touched them emotionally. And so something clicked in my mind, like, oh, there's something here. But it was very organic. I wrote for about a year on my own, trying to find my voice, as they say. And at the end of it, I had 200 pages of stuff, but it didn't hang together. There was no structure. There was no narrative art. There was no tension. And that's the craft of writing. And at that point, that was like two and a half years in, I thought, you know what? I think I'm ready. I think I can do this, but I need someone to teach me the craft of writing. And I started working with a writing coach. Her name is Jenny Nash. She's in Los Angeles. And she provided me the container. And once we had that in place, and and I make it sound easy, but getting the the narrative arc and the and the parts of the book and the tension. Once we had that locked down, I could just write and it just poured out of me. That's the fun part. <laughs> that only took about 10 months, but it took, you know, four years to get to that point. Right. So it's something you've been working on and thought about for a while, which for me is extra added value because you can go back and pull deeper meaning out of stories because you've revisited them more than once. Absolutely. In fact, I would say, I think most writers say this, the the very act of writing about something becomes part of that healing journey because I would write something and I'd be like, wait. And especially when I was working with my writing coach, she says, why did you feel that way? I'm like, "Uh, uh, what do you mean? Well, that doesn't make sense. (laughs) And so for me to explain a situation or a scene will make complete sense in my head. But when I put it on paper, I'm like, oh, that doesn't make sense. You're right. Wait a minute. Why did I feel that way? (laughs) And you have to peel back a few more layers. (laughs) Absolutely. Where can people buy Strong Like Water? You can buy it at any bookstore. I would love it if people supported their local bookstore. But of course, it's also available online. Amazon, um, IndieBook, Barnes & Noble, it's everywhere. You can also go on my website, which is laylataraf.com and get more information on it. And I've even written a book discussion guide for book study groups, which I've actually been invited to come to some and and I'm loving them. In fact, my old coaching program just asked me if I would be available for their book study group, which I mean, to me, they're the masters. So 10 years later to be invited back to speak just feels like such an honor. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I want to circle back with the last couple of minutes that we have um, because I was so excited about it. And what was your experience like UC Berkeley? Oh, well, I was in business school. It wasn't undergrad. So I think it's a little different, right? Because you stay kind of on one part of the campus. And this was the 90s, late 90s. 
it's just a beautiful, open learning environment. Yeah. Everyone is curious, super diverse, really engaged and interested and innovative. I still have my best friends from that time. It's a beautiful area. It's a beautiful place to be a student, right? Because your mind is just opening. Yeah. And that's, I, I haven't been there, but I've heard amazing things about it and have read about different people who have been there and you know what they've created since in very different ways has been unbelievable. It's a very creative, accepting place. You can be anything. No one's ever going to shut your idea down, no matter how crazy it sounds. Now, it may not go anywhere eventually, but no one's going to shut down the idea. It's a very open, accepting place, which is why it's so innovative. Yeah, that's really cool. Um, I'm also curious with Allbirds, how do you keep everybody inspired when you're all in different places? Because you have retail stores. And for those of you who don't know, Allbirds makes incredibly comfy. I now own two pair shoes, <laughs> but that are sustainable. And if I remember correctly, one shoe type is tree-based and the other one is wool-based. Yes. Right. Yes. How do I keep everyone inspired? So Allbirds is amazing. It's so exciting to be at a mission-based company. People are so passionate about the work. The learning for me, because Allbirds is a very young company, our average age is 29 or 30. And I think everybody, when they're at the beginning of their career, is super passionate and idealistic and wants to change the world. I mean, it was like, you know, the generation before us, like the 60s hippie era. I think we probably grew up in the most boring era in the 80s. Deal, right? But I remember being super passionate about wanting to help people. And, And so we have that in spades. And now it's even like more of an activist mindset. The challenge is to take all that beautiful passion and channel it into some sort of commercial or business, a structure that we can actually be able to build the organization so we can achieve that global impact of lowering the planet's carbon footprint. It's how do we keep them inspired, especially the retail stores. The thing I'm most excited about, we just kicked off a program that we developed last year called Compass. And it's sort of this half coaching, half professional development series of sessions that really encourages people to learn who they really are, ask themselves, what do I love to do? Where is there a need in the world so that we can help them identify their core purpose? And we're in our first sort of series of sessions now, and they're loving it. And we're loving it. It's so inspiring. I mean, this kind of work, young people don't usually get access to until you hire like, you know, an executive coach, which costs a lot of money later in your career. So we're giving them content and exposure to things very early in their careers that I think is exciting and hopefully value add. Oh, I would think it'd be a huge value add. It's been amazing. I got an email last week from one of the leaders in retail and he, out of the blue, and these are the things that are, that are amazing. He just said, I just want you to know how much we're all enjoying this program and thank you for offering it. I mean, really? Like my heart just, I'm like, oh, and I just want to do more for them. (laughs) So it's good. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have to say the vibe in the Philadelphia store was incredible. Everybody was super friendly and super knowledgeable. Oh, great. Great. Um, Mark, the, Mark, the store manager there is awesome. Yeah. And that's a reflection of your leadership as well. Yeah. Yeah. Overall, we are so lucky to have such an amazing retail team. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. 
Layla, this has been phenomenal. I'm so super excited about Strong Like Water and everything that you're doing, what you stand for. So I'm, I'm really glad that we were able to find time and, and connect. Thank you. Thank you so much. I've enjoyed this as well, Emmy. Yeah, awesome. Share with everybody where they can connect with you. I think the best way is through my website, laylataraf.com and just hit the contact me button and it comes right into my mailbox. Awesome. And we're going to have the link for the book and the link for your website and the show notes too. So everybody can just scroll down and click. Oh, and also on Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook. I always forget yeah. about that. All those, platforms. <laughs> all, those, all those things, except Twitter. I don't do Twitter. It's too time consuming. I don't do Twitter. Don't care about Twitter. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you so much. Great to spend time with you. Bye, Emmy. Bye. Thank you so much for being a listener of the Tribe of Leaders podcast. I am so grateful for each and every episode that you tune in and listen to. And I hope that you get a ton of value that you can implement starting today. And I do have just a quick favor. If you wouldn't mind hopping on to wherever it is that you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and review, it would help us tremendously so that the Tribe of Leaders podcast can be found more easily and help inspire other entrepreneurial leaders. 